The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. I ended up leaving a courtroom that I had started my career in, that I had tried cases in, big cases, right? And now I am being walked down the hallway in cuffs away from that courtroom into the county jail. And the first three days in county were actually a blessing. It was the first time that I couldn't hear any stories about me, read any stories about me, nobody could call me. I was just sitting there with my thoughts. But the immediate part is, of course, the strip search, the uniform, and when the door closes behind you. And the big takeaway, especially as a defense lawyer, if you would have asked me the day before I went to prison what prison's like, I would have told you, like, I know everything about it. And I think a lot of lawyers would. But you realize you don't know a thing about what happens when that door closes behind you. Hello from New York City to our listeners. My name is Lauren and welcome back to another episode of The Hearing Podcast. This time from the Big Apple where you may hear the city's lullaby occasionally, including some construction noise and sirens. In any event, I'm so excited to be hosting my very first episode of The Hearing today and even more excited to welcome my first guest, John Kufos. John is a former lawyer whose work now centers on helping people re-enter society after prison, and he is no stranger to the U.S. media. He's been interviewed by a wide array of media outlets in the U.S., including the New York Times, the C-SPAN Washington Journal, and dozens of radio outlets. His commentaries have been published in the New York Post and on Fox News and in local media around the U.S. as well. But the path to his current career, which has led him all the way up to the Oval Office of the White House, shaking hands with US presidents, among other places, was far from typical. As you'll learn, John is in a somewhat unique position to talk about both sides of the US criminal justice system. Uh, His story and career, which includes serving time in prison, is one about starting over and second chances. And John's candor about battling demons that many people face, including a 15-year battle with alcoholism as a former lawyer, lays the groundwork for an impactful story about his life so far that I hope you find as interesting as I did. The Hearing. Well, hello, John, and, and thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you. So, John, the last time I saw you in person, we were probably in a law school classroom together in New York City as law students many, many years ago. And I will do us both a favor and not say what year that was. Thank Um, you. (laughs) So a lot has happened in your life uh, since those days. But I wanted to start with what you're doing these days and and the work that you're doing now. So tell us about your company and, and what it is you do. Sure. So, uh, yeah, those were wild times. In fact, I don't remember so much of law school, uh, which I'm sure we'll get to later in the interview as to why that is. But, um, yeah, so I uh, am a criminal justice reform advocate, probably what I'm known best for uh, here in America. Uh, But what I do at my company is I help primarily businesses, right, figure out how to hire people with criminal records properly, safely, etc. That's a, probably about 70%, 60% of what I do. The other 40% is in the healthcare space. I work with large healthcare providers and payers here in the States because we have folks who often having gone through the incarceration experience or just generally with criminal records and, and, and with the systemic poverty issues in the States here, often neglect their healthcare. So there are specified pathways to help people process through that to get better health outcomes. Those are the two biggest things I'm doing right now. 
And what is the name of your company? If you oh yeah, so, like I'm only guys. I'm a terrible marketer, right? No wonder I'm, <laughs> I'm not making enough money around here. No, so I, I, I my company is called Cottage Four, and you might say, well, what kind of crazy name is that? So that is the unit I was locked up on at Bayside State Prison. So when you go and we'll get to the prison story, I'm sure in a few, when you go to prison, they have these these flowery names for places that are like the worst places you could ever be. So like, oh, you're going to be living in the cottages. I'm like, oh, okay. And I was in Cottage 4. So that's where I got the name from. And yet this is the first time I've ever said it publicly where it came from. Oh, great. Well, thank you for sharing with us. There you go, an exclusive for you. Um, so you you sort of let the cat out of the bag, which is which is great. Um, but before your current career, you were a practicing criminal defense attorney. You started your own firm. You represented defendants in high profile criminal cases. Mm-hmm. Many attorneys make a career change, but I think it's safe to say that your story um, is probably a bit unique. Um, so can you tell us why you're you're no longer a practicing attorney and and how you um, got to your current career? Sure, sure. The uh, yeah, and as you mentioned, so I tried everything from municipal court to murder. Um, very, very large cases handled racketeering, wiretaps, big cases um, in in the state of New Jersey, um, which, as you know, Lauren, you know, is no shortage of cases like that. Um, and I was one of the youngest trial attorneys certified by the Supreme Court of New Jersey. Um, I think less than half of one percent of all New Jersey attorneys ever get a, a Supreme Court trial certification. Um, owned a firm, people working uh, with me, for me, etc. Uh, also lead counsel to the NAACP. I had a big civil rights practice that I did, often for free, candidly. Um, but what was happening in my life uh, was really a 15-year at the time battle with alcoholism. And uh, I was a completely functional alcoholic. And uh it was a wild situation because if you read the news articles about me in 2009, 2010, 2000, uh, 2000, parts of 2011, you know, it was, you know, I was all over the state, right, uh, handling these really, really big, complex trials, just hung a jury in a, in a, in a murder case. Um, but then, of course, my alcoholism uh, caught up. I say caught up to me, but really, Lauren caught up to somebody else with nearly fatal consequences. It was June 17th of 2011, a little over 11 years ago, and I was leaving a bar association event, right? The bar association had an event. Um, I left that event drinking um, as I drank and drove many, many times. I'm not proud of, but that's a reality. Uh, Only this time, uh, it would, again, it would have near fatal consequences. I hit somebody. I was really at the end, candidly, of a long bender, to be honest, and a long, long level of burnout, which I didn't realize I was going through. And uh, and then I tried to lie my way out of it. I left, tried to lie my way out of it for three days before I cleared up and turned myself in on the fourth day. And, uh, you know, I'm very, very lucky in, in probably more ways than a guy like me deserves, Lauren. Um, but the most thing I've been blessed with besides my family, which I now have, I was single and you know, by myself back then, which made sense because I wasn't really a guy anybody would want to associate with personally. I mean, if you got jammed up, you'd want to hire me. But other than that, you probably wouldn't want to know me too much. But, um, you know, the person I hit, you know, lived. Uh, they went on to, you know, go to college. He was, I think he was 18 at the time. Uh, went on to, to go to college and I'm hoping realize their dreams. I mean, obviously, I don't know so much about what happened to them, but I know what parole told me. 
the other reason I do the justice reform work, and then we're going to get into the, the nuts and bolts of it, but I think it's important to, to say, and I say it probably too much, right? Because um, I like to remind myself is that I can't build a time machine and go back to June 17th, 2011 and not hurt this person. If I could, I, I swear to God, I would. You know, and maybe, you know, I've met a lot of celebrities. Maybe Elon Musk might be the first guy who's going to build the time machine. If I can meet Elon, maybe we can partner together. I'll get a second chance hiring program to build the time machine and we'll go back and fix it. <laughs> but I can't do that. So all I can do is try to create programs, policies, and uh, and different structures to prevent, to hopefully prevent these situations from happening or resolve them for people at risk to commit crime. And then really, Lauren, we save tomorrow's victims in that way. And that's the best I can do. Let's talk about alcoholism for a second. Um, I obviously want to get uh, more into what you're doing now, but mm-hmm. but I think it's worth sort of unpacking that a little bit. Oh, it's a huge part of the story. Yeah. And I think every, um, not every, but many lawyer stories. Yes, yes. So, so one of the things that sort of came to mind when you were talking about it was there seems to be an ever-present discussion now about burnout among lawyers and the substance abuse that that comes along with that. Um, this sort of seems like an obvious question, but do you think the stress of being an attorney, you know, helped fuel your al- alcoholism even more, and did it become worse as a lawyer? Yes. Oh, it most certainly did. And I think there's really two things going on there, right? There's one, I think, as lawyers, you know, we're trained to fix everybody's problem, right? And part of fixing everyone's problem is making sure that you don't have any of your own. And if you do, you can still take the field, as they say, right, to solve others. And I think just naturally, most lawyers push themselves, push their own issues aside. I know I did. And when I speak privately with other lawyers with issues. Uh, you know, this happens all the time. And what where we go from there, right, where we end up going from, from that point is you have a whole group of folks who really, you know, probably were told their whole lives or demonstrated their whole lives. They were overachievers, right? They get into law school, they're of high education, etc. And you're put into the this battlefield, and especially in America, right? I mean, law is just straight. It's the last form of legal combat here in America, right? <laughs> and and there's a million stresses a lawyer has to deal with. It's not only how am I going to perform, how am I going to look as I perform, uh, how am I going to meet my billables if you're with a firm, how am I going to bring in clients, right? If that's a, which is always a key part, and how am I going to look strong at all times? And I think that alcohol becomes the natural compensation for us. And the other piece of this, by the way, is the fact that alcohol is so intricately tied into every single thing we do. I mean, even you and I at law school together. I mean, how many events did the law school sponsor, right, with Open Bar? I know I was at every one. It didn't matter what the event was. And so many of, of our colleagues were as well, right? So every piece of this, drinking is ingrained in the culture. And I think that that is, so we create this almost perfect storm in the legal profession of we know who are at, we almost always know who our at-risk friends are. I can tell you, June 17th, 2011 wasn't the first time, you know, I looked in the mirror and said, damn, I have an alcohol problem. And it certainly wasn't the first time when I spoke to my close friends afterwards that they said, you have an alcohol problem. It was just the first time that it had disastrous consequences that I was willing to face. So you mentioned that, I mean, alcohol is part and parcel of of being a lawyer, going to events, um, you know, certainly at, at big firms. You are somebody who now, um, I imagine, socializes quite a bit and and goes to these events. 
Do you have any tips on how you handle these events for, for other people who may be struggling, lawyers, other professionals, when, when they don't want to drink but feel the pressure to drink? What, what do you do when you're faced with that situation? Yeah, you know, it, it's a fantastic question because I went from – I still do a million legal events. In fact, I, they still have me teaching CLEs to things. I taught a CLE two years ago to one of the Supreme Court justices – or one of the Supreme Court justices of New Jersey who voted to disbar me was actually in the crowd. How ironic is that, right? He keeps his license with the CLE credits I teach. But no, great guy. You know, he's retired. We've since connected. But um, but I think and then, you know, so much of my work now as we get into is with politics, right? Presidents, governors, except big business and alcohol is, runs through every single one of those things. And I think that the key first for anybody is I think you have to understand something that I didn't realize afterwards. And every it's so obvious to every lawyer, and I'm hoping that, that the words I'm about to say resonate with, with many, many of your listeners who, if some are at risk. So take, take a great soccer player, right? A great soccer player relies on his or her leg to kick goals, right? He or she would never take a hammer and slam the hammer against his leg all day, every day to socialize, <laughs> right? Right. We, we lawyers rely on our brains to get us where how we got here, right? And yet with alcohol and substances, we slam that brain against the wall over and over and over again when we're in a highly regulated profession where we can get knocked off if we do something uh, illegal, as, as I am living proof of and so many others are, although I never did anything to a client, of course. Um, but I think that we need to approach as lawyers that Tom Brady wouldn't run his shoulder into the wall. He may make poor marriage decisions right now, which is affecting his performance. But in general, he would not run his shoulder into the wall. So we have to protect that, our mental health, because our mental health is really where substance abuse comes from, right? Very few people say, oh, I drink just because I feel like everything's fantastic. Nobody does that at the end of the uh, – most people aren't drinking heavily at the end of a winning streak, right? Um, they're drinking because something else is stressing them out. There's some level of anxiety. So when you're at events, I think that, you know, one of the one of the key tips, if you're if you don't want others to know you're not drinking, what I what, what I have seen people do and I've counseled people to do is is get like seltzer water with a lime because the whole world will think you're drinking vodka. Right. And nobody will even ask. And then until you get comfortable enough only having bottled water and things of that nature, um, you know. Obviously, saying you have family at home, you have some somewhere to be, etc. You're not going to say, "Hey, you know, I'm I'm on I, I'm close to a breakdown, so I'm not drinking tonight." But I think there's ways you can mask it. And the good news is, with the heavy amount of alcoholics at these events, they're not going to notice anyway if you have a seltzer in line. <laughs> so I mean, it's it's sort of obvious, right? But I think it really helps um, for people to hear it, to hear that people do that. That you know. There are ways to talk about it, ways to sort of dance around it where it doesn't have to, you know, put the focus on the drinking and what's in your hand. So. Because you, you bring up a great point. You know, sitting behind all of this is that lawyers are afraid to ask for help. And we're hardwired, first of all, again, to be the helpers, right? That's but true. but even me, I knew I, I you know, I tried to go to therapy. Well, let me go. I went to therapy. It didn't work. I went to basic alcohol treatment before the accident didn't work, right? And sitting in the back of my mind, one of the reasons I didn't fully engage because I was worried like, oh my God, what if somebody ever pulls these records? You know, what if the ethics committee, some client files an ethics charge against me one day and they pull these records for something and ethics crawls, 
you know, uh, you know, uh, crawls into my situation and then they're going to pull it and they're going to say, oh my God, John has all this unresolved childhood trauma and all these things. So we're very worried, I think, to put things on the record, even if they can help us because we're hardwired not to. I think that's right. I yeah. think that's right. It's a sad reality of, of being a lawyer. It is. So, so you're in prison. You, you went in as a you know, criminal defense attorney, and then you find yourself inside prison, just like presumably some of your clients. What, what surprised you most about you know, being in prison? On the outside, you're a lawyer, calm and cool, but inside there's a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game. You prepare hour after hour, day after day, in the pursuit of excellence, relying on superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. That's the advantage we give you. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. What surprised you most about you know, being in prison as somebody who was previously only on the outside? Right. Well, the, 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 the first thing that shocks you, by the way, and I'll get to the real answer, is the food, right? The food is like, you know, it's there's a great show actually in the UK uh, where they where Raphael Rowe, who was wrongly accused of murder, right, goes to all these prisons around the world. And some of them are in third world countries. And the food looks better than the food we had in, in America in the prison, right? And I'm like, my God, we got to get the recipe from like, you know, Ghana or wherever these prisons were that he was at. But um but no, let me tell you about the prison experience. So what happens is, you know, I go to sentencing and, uh, you know, I'm ex- I have a maximum cap of six years, right? I probably thought I was going to get three years. Most people in my situation probably don't get six years. Um, and I get the whole six. And from there, you immediately, I, I ended up leaving a courtroom that I had started my career in in New Jersey that I had tried cases in big cases. Right. And now I am being walked down the hallway in cuffs um, away from that courtroom into the County jail. And, you know, you sit in County jail and I'll tell you, Lauren, the first three days in County were actually a blessing. It was the first time that I couldn't hear any stories about me, read any stories about me. Nobody could call me. I was just sitting there with my thoughts, but that's in the aggregate. The immediate part is, of course, the strip search, the uniform, and when the door closes behind you. And the big takeaway, as a def- especially as a defense lawyer, if you would have asked me the day before I went to prison what prison's like, I would have told you, like, I know everything about it. And I think a lot of lawyers would, particularly practicing complex criminal defense. But you realize you don't know a thing about what happens when that door closes behind you. Um, you are in the administrative state now, right? It is will of the warden or the governor of the prison, as they call it in the, in the UK, right? It is will of, it is that person's will and that's the rules. And there's virtually no recourse for anything that goes on. From the county jail, I was transferred a place called Central Reception, right? In New Jersey, in America, in this particular state that I was in, New Jersey, everybody goes to Central Reception. Central Reception looked like the prison Hannibal Lecter was in without the plexiglass. Like that, that, that's the only way I can describe what it looked exactly like that. Same size stone, same ambient lighting, etc. Big rats everywhere. Liver, liver. Liver, no, no. Well, actually, I don't know what we were served. So it very well could have been. No Chianti though, which I luckily I was in early recovery. I wouldn't have taken it. Um, so nobody wants me though, right? Because I'm the, I mean, no prison really wants to house me because 
they assume I'm a security risk. So the prison says, well, you're this defense attorney, you represent all these high profile people. We'd like to put you in protective custody. So protective custody from who? I don't, who do I need to be protected from? They said, well, the clients you screwed over is what they said. So, well, I don't have any of them. So I'll go to general population. Uh, they ended up shipping me to a place called Bayside State Prison, which was the prison my clients were afraid of. And I learned why my clients were afraid of, uh, afraid of it. At Bayside State Prison, it was like what you see on a bad TV show. Fights, uh, poor conditions, just terrible situations everywhere you go. And being a defense lawyer, you know, it's interesting because some people avoid you altogether, right? Like, because they don't want any, they don't, they assume you can pick up the phone and call everybody. Some people love rubbing your face in it every day. Say, hey, lawyer, how's it feel to be, you know, whatever. I'll, I'll, I'll spare what they actually say because, you know, we're going to keep this like a PG rated show. Thank you. But it's prison. Um, <laughs> and then a lot of people ask for help. And the interesting thing is, is there's like this, there's like this, commerce in prison where jailhouse paralegals will do motions and things for people for like soups and candy and sodas and things like that. I, you know, I, I help guys get time back for nothing. Right. You know what I mean? And, and, uh, and I'd help them. Yeah. Cause these, some of these people can't read, right. They have no opportunity. And the biggest takeaway as a defense lawyer that I realized is I was always dealing with the problem after it happened. Right. It's like an ER doctor, right. I come, when they bring the car, they bring the victim, the shooting victim to me, and I have to somehow do surgery on this person. The root cause of so many of these issues, lack of education and poverty. And you and I realize that there are people that I'm locked up with never had a first chance, let alone a second chance. Not everybody, Lauren. Listen, there's this, there's this, there's this viewpoint sometimes that people say in criminal justice reform that every single person in prison is just somebody clamoring for a second chance or their first chance. Not the case. There are people I, lock, I was locked up with that should never leave. There are people that I was represented that should never leave, right? There will always be public safety threats. My own father was a, a lifetime, apparently a lifetime criminal. That was his profession. There is no reentry program I could have built for him. But the overwhelming majority of people locked up, right, are looking for another path, right? And, and I'll tell you, one of the things I never forgot is, you know, nobody asked me for money when I was locked up. Nobody. But everybody asked me for a job and I'm just an inmate. I'm just an inmate like them, but they want a job. When you lock with another person, you're in a cell with another person, you learn a lot of, as long as, you know, they don't think you're an ax murderer and they talk to you, which they didn't think I was, um, that, you know, you'll learn a lot about their families, what they want to do. And you hear, say, John, I want to get a job. I want to pay child support. I want to reunify with my daughter. I want, I don't want to fight with the mother of my children anymore. But what the hell am I going to do? How am I going to get there? I didn't know either, right? I, I had no in, uh, idea, but I heard those stories and I never forgot them. I think the other thing when you think about prison, you never want to be the high profile person in prison. You always want to be someone who blends in. And I, unfortunately, I was. And I saw the very worst of some people in prison. But Lauren, I'd be lying if I, if I, if I didn't tell you that I, I saw the very best in some people. Corrections officers and inmates. One thing that that really struck me in in reading, you know, about your work is how much life in and after prison seems to be a catch twenty two or or is a catch twenty two. I think there's some of the more you know obvious big picture things like people don't want to associate or hire um, a convicted felon, 
But then there are things that never even occur to people who haven't been in prison um, or haven't had a loved one in prison that they never really stop to think about. I know certainly, you know, there are things that didn't even occur to me. Transportation, being able to get a credit card. Can you highlight for our listeners what kinds of specific Catch-22s people who come out of prison have to deal with and, and some possible solutions to them? Sure. And I'll start right with the ticket to the dance for everybody's life, which is identification. So uh, most prisons have a law that says you have to make sure an inmate leaves with identification. And when identification doesn't mean a prison ID, it means either a driver's license or more likely a non-driver ID. That's that until recently, that has never that that rarely is done. So you had people coming out with no ID. Right. I mean, I'm not I mean, not even the the documents to get an ID and no money to get an ID. So think of all the things you couldn't do with it without an ID. Right. Without your birth certificate, Social Security card and that ID. The other thing, which is how I got my start in this business, so to speak, is the fines and fees situation. So, you know, there are all these little town courts where you could get a meaningless ticket. But if you don't pay it right, they suspend your driver's license. And uh, whether you have one or not, and they issue another warrant for your arrest. So I used to sit in the, on the prison yard and in the law library, and I'd watch guys go out to parole and supervision and come back within a matter of weeks because of some $40, $50 ticket that was never paid. And more interesting than that, this person was locked up for like 10 years and no, everyone knew they had these court appearances and the prisons did nothing. And this isn't just New Jersey. This is common around the place. And, you know, I'll tell you how how interlocking administrative and regulatory systems really mess people up. So I use a personal story. It's, it's somewhat funny, but it really will underscore the issue. So I'm sitting in prison. I end up getting a, a notice one day that I have to go to video court. Now, there weren't a lot of video courts, right, in a town. So I have to go to video court in my hometown, which is a very small town at the Jersey Shore. And you know, not a lot of people there. Everybody knew who I was, etc. So I'm like, how could I have court? I have nothing at all going on. Well, what happened was when I get locked up, my house didn't have a lawn. It had rocks, right? And weeds started growing through the rocks. Some code enforcement officer writes a ticket to the house, I guess, which was being foreclosed upon. It wasn't even going to be my house anymore. And they figure out, well, who owns the house? John. Well, John has a court date for failing to cut his weeds, okay? John's busy being in Bayside State Prison, so and the whole world knows he's there. They suspend my driver's license, issue a warrant for my arrest. I go to video court. My driver's license was suspended for that. Right? Now, when I got to court, it was obviously because of who I am and the access I have, it was thrown out, and I still had to pay the fee to reinstate the license with the motor vehicle department. But I tell that story because if that can happen to me, who not only everybody knows knew who I was, had every reason for it not to happen, but has enough knowledge and access to know how to fix it. What do you think the average person has to deal with when they can't get an ID, when they're afraid to go to motor vehicles because they're afraid there might be a, an old warrant for them? So if they go to motor vehicles to even ask how to get an ID, they get locked up at the motor vehicles and then sent back, right? You have issues. Transportation is a huge one. Right. If you don't live in a place with a good metro, which most places in America do not have great uh, public transportation, then you're not going to be able to get to work. You have child support that instead of someone letting the court know where you are to, to pause it, 
right? Or at least pause the requirement to pay in a certain schedule, not pause the accumulation of it, etc. cetera. Uh, but they don't do anything with it. So people come out with monstrous amounts of child support as if they're making street money when they're making three, I made $3 and 70 cents a day. And I was like the second highest paid guy in the whole, in the whole place. Um, and you have all of these different collateral consequences, housing, you can't get you. If there is housing, not going to take you because you have a record. I couldn't get an apartment. I needed four co-signers and I had two banking lawyers that we, we graduated with from law school. These are, you know, $500,000 a year guys had to put their name down for me to even get an apartment. I couldn't get life insurance uh, from when my kids were born because I'm, I'm a felon. Uh, I was able to undo that decision from the underwriter, but only because, you know, I could get someone to look at my case and I pay a premium that is beyond what anybody else does. Um, and I couldn't get childcare for my kids, right? I have a nonviolent offense, right? I couldn't get a nanny. So, these are the kind of things that no matter what stage of life you're at, it doesn't matter if you're John and hang out with the people I hang out with or, you know, you're someone who, you know, doesn't even have a high school diploma. The barriers will always be there. They will always follow you. And the problem is, is that we don't have unlimited time for people when they get out before they fall off, particularly if they have addiction issues, particularly if they have housing issues, you know, they have certain needs. So we don't have six weeks post-release to get them an ID. They have to eat today. They need a roof today. They need to get to start getting their life back immediately. And the system's just not geared for that. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's wild when you stop and, and think about, you know, all the, the seemingly little things that you need to establish a life, you know, for yourself. And, and all of these things are, are sort of chipped away at with, with prison in the background. It's, it's yeah. Um, it's really and, sad. And let me tell you this, you know, you know, there, there's, I think there's like 20 million people in America with a felony alone, right? Or under supervision. I mean, it, it, it's a massive number because you'll get people say, well, what, well, I don't care about that, right? I follow all the rules. What do I care? And what people don't realize is that we're all consumers of the criminal justice system. It's in all of our interest to make this work. First of all, even if you don't believe uh, in any piece of the reentry conversation, Everybody has to believe that a working person is uh, with a record is better than a non-working person with a record for two big reasons. One, working people are much less likely to commit new crimes and victimize new people. But even if you didn't care about that, say you say, you know what? I live in an enclave where there's no crime. I live in a gated community. Doesn't matter to me. Well, it should because if we can convert people who might be tax drains, right, need lots of social services, law enforcement intervention, need prisons, and we convert them into tax bases, people who are working, paying taxes, right? That's better for everybody, right? Sure. And I don't think any of us want our taxes going to some nonviolent, particularly say a nonviolent type of, of person, right? Or a person who's gotten their life together when they could be a tax base. So even if you don't like the people involved, most people usually like the issue when they think of it in that way. But beyond that, because we're all consumers of the criminal justice system, whether you're, you know, a completely law abiding, you know, what's the old saying in law school, whether it's a nun swearing on a stack of Bibles, whether you're that person or a person fresh out of Bayside State Prison, the uh, we're all consumers of that system. So when it works for, for anyone, it works for everyone. More importantly, when it fails 
for anyone, it fails for everyone, often with disastrous consequences. And I'll just give you one personal story on that. I'm, um, it's very clear alcohol is my issue. I'm being released because I had no home. So I was released at first to a law school roommate's house before I got that appoint, apartment uh, I told you about to Hoboken, New Jersey. And what your your listeners may not know or your viewers may not know is like Hoboken, New Jersey is not really where a drunk goes to get sober. It's like it's one of the most partying towns in like the entire Northeast, right? I think there's 101 bars in a 1.25 square mile town, I think is the actual stat. So I said, hey, you know, where are the, uh, the AA, Alcoholics Anonymous meetings? Where are those things? And all the prison did was they wrote a 1-800 number and they handed it to me. Amazing. And like, Amazing. and think of what the, so we know what the consequences are if John relapses and decides to get behind the wheel and nearly kill somebody. That's when, it, that's what I say when I'm talking about all of us being consumers of the criminal justice system. It, it needs to work for everybody. This doesn't have to be, you know, and I hate to use this term, but I go to very conservative areas of the country. They, they say, you know, John, why are you doing all these hug-a-thug programs, right? <laughs> and I said, well, these aren't hug-a-thug programs. They're actually victim prevention programs. I mean, it makes it makes sense. It's so easy, I think, for people to say, eh, it's not my problem. You know, I don't associate with criminals. I don't have to worry about it. You know, I don't want to deal with it. And, and right. your perspective is, is you know, very thought provoking and, and should really make people, you know, think twice before they have that attitude. I think that people are starting to realize that this is a public safety tool. So if you like public safety, you have to like the type of work we're talking about today recognizing that you have this advantage, um, you know, of being literate, of having had a law school education and having been a practicing lawyer, you get out of prison. How do you get back on your feet? How do you get a job? Walk us through what that looked like. Yeah. And, you know, it's a great question. So the first job I had, I only got because I knew the CEO of the company in Trenton, New Jersey. Uh, uh, God rest his soul. He passed just a few years ago, but he was a dear friend. In fact, his daughter was one of my paralegals. She's now a highly successful trial attorney in the public defender's office. Great, great woman. And they had different business issues that they needed handled. And they said, John, come work in the back office. And the good news, this gentleman was really into recovery, very public about it too, right? Um, really into recovery, 30 years sober himself. And I think saw some of his own there, but for the grace of God, go I, right? I think he saw, and he believed in me when a lot of people didn't. Ironically enough, the company was a biometric security company. So like all these places are buying biometric security from this place. We're fixing the company, doing these security things, and I'm on parole. Now, the other thing that, that so I had it because I knew somebody, right? It was a network. I didn't expect to get out either. Let me tell you this. So here I am sentenced to six years with good behavior. You'll pull about 44 months on that in the state of New Jersey. And I'm a high profile inmate without a single political friend in the world, which means you're, usually the popular wisdom says you're not going to get paroled because I didn't know a single politician until I was a felon, which may make sense in, in New Jersey in America. But, you know, in more civilized places probably isn't the same thing. So, um, you know, so I didn't expect to get out. So when I went before the parole board and they let me out and they believed in me and gave me a chance, that independently was motivating for me to do the right thing because they had every reason to hit me. Uh, hit is called denial of parole in, in prison language, right? To deny parole. So I had this job um, in this biometric security place, great environment, great people, people that love me, I love them. And I'm very lucky to, to, to be in that spot. But now I don't have a law license, right? Because I'm suspended pending that whole disciplinary process we talked about earlier. So here I am in North Jersey and I have a chance meeting with a former 
New Jersey governor named Jim McGreevy. Uh, governor McGreevy was doing county jail ministry, um, had his own journey to redemption, uh, not not involving anything criminal, of course, um, but politically. And uh, I, I have a chance meeting with him. And again, I don't know a single politician. And Jim, Governor McGreevy, wanted to see some solution to this problem, right? He wanted to see re-entry centers around the state to help people intake and serve as a hub of services. So I started volunteering for Jim because all I wanted to do uh, in partnership with his community, excuse me, his county jail ministry, all I wanted to do, Lauren, was to hook up my lawyer friends to solve those unpaid fines and fees we talked about earlier, right? We talked about that whole situation. Guys have $40 fine. They come right back. So I put together 70 pro bono lawyers to a cloud-based case management system. I call it like the poor man's Uber for lawyers, right? Mm-hmm. And then these lawyers all across New Jersey could help a person no matter where they had the pl- where they had a problem. And then I got that program certified by the New Jersey Supreme Court as a, a disbarred felon. So that way lawyers could get credit for it. Collateral to that or concurrent to that, uh, Governor McGreevy took me to see our governor at the time, Governor Christie, who was very interested, Chris Christie was and is, in uh, addressing the opioid epidemic, not just from a substance abuse perspective, but from the criminality that comes from it. And an idea for a nonprofit called the New Jersey Reentry Corporation was born. Uh, governor McGreevy recruited all of the former governors on, uh, on the board. And we built nine locations in, in three and a half years, served tens of thousands of people. And that uh, I met President Obama doing that work. Um, but how I got the job, candidly, I got my first job coming out because I knew somebody, as so many of us do. But I got the job that probably put me on the national stage really by just making a call and trying to volunteer and candidly just trying to do the next right thing, right? Using my deep lawyer networks, even though I couldn't practice, to solving a social problem I saw. And never in a million years would I have expected to be named executive director of the New Jersey Reentry Corporation, meet multiple presidents or any of those things. So I guess a, a lot of it, uh, much of it was luck. But I think that where you pair luck with service, I think that you know, you're going to find better outcomes. I mean, not to be cheeky about it, but but the phrase making lemonade out of lemons keeps coming to mind in, in every story that you tell. It's really, um, yeah, it's it's incredible the work that you've done. But it just, ha- you know, Lauren, the fascinating part, it just happened that way, right? The, I, I mean, I never, I never set out with my meeting with Jim McGreevy to say, I'm now going to be a public figure, right? Or any of these things. Sure. I just, my thing was, I saw guys that are getting the criminal, I saw the criminalization of poverty, right? I saw guys getting locked up for the criminalization of poverty, and I knew I had a bunch of lawyer buddies, old drinking buddies, and now I can't drink with anymore because I don't drink, right, um, that still wanted to do things with me and would help it out. And I think that, you know, in recovery, there's a saying that says, when you're doing the right things, the right things seem to happen. And I think that is, is I hope, is a number one takeaway for anyone who might be listening who's on the brink, struggling, or on the path that I was. Um you know, the more you do the right things, you'll find the more the right things seem to happen to you. Not always, of course. Remember, along the way, I was disbarred. I had bankruptcy, all these different things. But in the aggregate, um, you know, I think that 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 I've been given a lot more than, than I deserve. And I don't even understand how I have some of the things I have. And and I think that that 
the phrase that anything's possible in recovery, whether it's recovering from something. We're all on the road back from somewhere, Lauren, right? It doesn't have to be booze, right? We could be on the road back from booze. We could be on the road back from anxiety, unresolved child trauma, right? All the heroin, whatever it is. But we're all on the road back from somewhere or something. And it's how we travel that road that's probably going to decide everything that happens in our future. Sure, sure. I mean, it's really an inspiring message. And, and I hope our listeners certainly um, keep that in mind if, if they are struggling. So you're no stranger to, to famous politicians and celebrities. As you mentioned, you've worked with the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and now the Biden administration on um, these, these um, second chance efforts. You've shaken hands with Presidents Obama and Trump. You've stood inside the Oval Office. Um, you mentioned to me when we spoke before this interview that you're, you're friendly with Alice Johnson, who President Trump famously uh, pardoned after Kim Kardashian took up Alice's cause. So who is the next person you would like to connect with to sort of help shed light on, on the work that you do and why? Gordon Ramsay. Right. And, and Gordon Ramsay. Why Gordon, is that? Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> Gordon Ramsay had a wonderful show in 2012 called Gordon Behind Bars. I found it one night. I'm 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 my wife and I were just up with with the baby. The baby finally went down and I'm watching Gordon Ramsay in this amazing show. I think it was in Brixton pr- prison in London. And he essentially makes a kitchen behind the wall of this prison and teaches the inmates how to become bakery chefs. And then he sells the product. I think he called it like the Bad Boys Bakery or the Outlaws Bakery, something like that. It was so well done. Gordon Ramsay was amazing. He shares some personal story of his brother, you know, overcoming addiction, which he shared in other environments that I've re- uh, watched. The only problem with the show, it was like seven years too soon. Right. Because he did this thing in 2011, 2012, whenever it was, when the world was probably not as uh, interested in the idea of prison reform, second chance hiring, the public safety benefits. So I w- if I could meet anyone, sit down, it would it would literally be Gordon Ramsay and say, Gordon, now's the time. I know lots of I know lots of prison administrators. Let's do this show again. But now in this climate, it would be a huge success, huge hit. So Gordon Ramsay is the one person I, w- I would love to meet. So Gordon Ramsay, if you're listening, please reach out to us and we will connect you with John. <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to. And the thing is, the, you know, the funny part is, you know, it, it's it's. It's he didn't re I don't know if he realized how ahead of his time he was like right now in America, the National Restaurant Association has a whole second chance project and pipeline. Prisons are putting entire advanced culinary programs inside the wall. It's just he was just too soon. He did it too quickly. Maybe he's ready for a second chance. <laughs> well said. Well said. Let's see. So you mentioned your wife and your your two young daughters and congratulations on the baby, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. So so now that you are a parent of two, have you given any thought to how you will tell your daughters about your life one day? And do you think that your life experience will either impact the way you parent or has it already impacted the way that you parent? It's, it certainly has. I'm, I, you know, I want to say, you know, and and I don't know if I've ever spoken about this publicly, but no one's ever asked such a candidly a good question on this subject like this. It really hits to the heart of it. But, you know, I remember when my first daughter, Vienna, was born uh, in 2019. And, you know, when I held her for the first time, 
you're, you're overcome with joy and emotion. And that was, I don't know how long that was, a couple minutes, minute, I don't know, I wasn't, didn't have a stopwatch. But then the next thing I thought of was the family of the person who I hit. That there was a time when they held their little boy in that same way. And here my, I come in with my alcoholism and burnout and all of my problems. And I nearly take this guy out permanently. And even though he lived, there was a time where they sat in hospitals with this person not knowing what was going to happen. And it was, and so I've never, there's never been a time as a parent where, where I haven't thought about the damage I caused. In fact, it brought up a whole new uh, realm of, 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 of sadness because for the first time I could actually have some level of, of, of putting myself in the parent's shoes of the person I hurt. Sure. So, you know, how... You know, what I want for my daughters is, you know, well, first, don't date any guys like me, right? It's, first, it's not, like, not for a while. Right? It's probably standard for fathers, but I probably make a really good case. I make a joke. You know, my wife comes from this, like, wonderful Brady Bunch family. In-laws, two of the best in-laws. They could accept the fact that I went to prison. They could not accept the fact that I was on stage with President Trump, right? That's like, that's been the biggest tension with the in-laws. I said, listen, John, we could accept that you were a front page felon, but we cannot accept the fact, but we got through it. My wife, you know, brilliant woman, PhD, works at a major, major tech company. Um, bad taste in men, obviously, but other than that, it's the only thing that, that's wrong with her. But, you know, it. I think about this issue. I thought about this issue a lot because my daughter, my first one's three, right? Her dad is, you know, in this space, a public figure, right? She's, oh, there's daddy on TV, right? And she doesn't understand what's happening. I don't know how I'm going to fully explain the situation to her or either of them, the one's three months. So I have a little lead time, right? So I can mess it up the first time and hopefully get it right the second time. But what I hope the takeaway is, is that, is that you can, you, you need to do the right thing as soon as possible in your life. You need to handle the things you need to handle. And what I'm hoping hoping I can use this for is to create a communication conversation, to tell my daughters that I don't care what happens. I'm not going to be mad. You got to come to me so we can solve it. Because when you going back to the beginning of our conversation, we think about lawyers afraid to share what's going on in their life with a trusted person. And then it builds and builds and builds. And eventually the, 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 the pipe bursts. So I'm hoping to use it in that context. Um, and I think the there's many layers of that because there's the crime, there's the fact that I went to prison, there's the fact that I won't apply to be on like, on, I, I don't apply when there's like a pre-K thing to be a chaperone. I don't because mm. I know the school knows who I am and you know, I don't want them to have to have that uncomfortable conversation with me right now. So I think the, 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 the takeaway I hope is is for her to realize and both my little girls to realize that is that this all could have been solved if I dealt with the problem early. And I'm hoping to create an area of open conversation on it. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's another, another powerful message and, you know, a reminder to, to ask for help. I think it's, it's a great thing to instill uh, in, in your kids, you know, don't be afraid to ask for help. You have to. You have to. So last question, John, uh, a big one. 
what's next for you? Are there, there any projects uh, that you can talk about on the horizon that you're super excited about? Sure. Well, hopefully this will uh, trigger that com- a second chance conversation with Gordon Ramsay. I wasn't, you know, right. I think that's, right. other than that, um, <laughs> no. So in that context, actually, um, I have, so I do a lot of corporate training for big, big companies around, around America uh, on how to do this right, right, to make sure that the risk management principles are where they need to be. Um, so two big things I'm doing. I have a, I was asked to do a training, corporate trainings, uh, I do a training on, uh, with a video element. Anyone that's done a corporate training, especially at a law firm, knows that, you know, these things are better than Ambien, right? They'll knock you right out. Nobody wants to watch them. You know, you know, they're, they're terrible. So we, I did one much difference called retaining talent. So essentially, uh, I am in this, it's an hour long, it, it watches like a documentary, right? Um, I'm the poor man's Anthony Bourdain, God rest his soul, right? Uh, we filmed it that style all over uh, really Florida and Washington, D.C., both with experts, law enforcement, prison leaders, and businesses that hire folks with criminal records and those people with criminal records. So retaining talent in fact, just came out officially. So I have a lot of – I'm all over the country on retaining – on that project. Um I'm building a really exciting uh, healthcare project in a state I can't name yet, which is to make sure that people with criminal records uh, who would be on Medicaid anyway are connected properly to the system, right? Public, the health element is often one of the most neglected for people. It trends along racial lines. It trends along poverty lines, zip code lines here in America, and I'm sure other, other places in the world. So helping solve that, and I am uh, in the process, a little bit of a departure, I was asked to help build partnerships to create human trafficking intervention programs. So human trafficking victims, often in the sex trade, are uh, there's a whole suite of services these poor people need. Many of them have criminal records from their days of being trafficked, as well as being victims. They hold this dual status. So how do we bring that experience to a place of healing? I've been asked to do uh, some projects on that, so we'll be launching that very shortly. Then now the only other thing I think I'm I'm really preparing for is I'm trying to do all the corporate trainings in the winter in the warm places and then in <laughs> old places in the summer. Right? I have this uncanny ability to be sent to Chicago, Kansas, and Iowa in January's and February's in this country. <laughs> good, uh, good strategy. For I sure. try. Well, thank you so much, John, for your your candor and injecting you know levity into some very very serious topics, um, and and just your willingness to share your incredible um, story with us today. I, I look forward to seeing you know where your work takes you next, and and thank you so much for joining us today. Well, listen, you know the pleasure was all mine. You know when when platforms as powerful as yours amplify this critical issue. You know, we, we can then really get to a point to solving the un, the, the underlying issues. So uh, all the credit candidly goes to you guys for, for putting this on Front Street for the world to see. So thank you. The Hearing. Thank you so much to our listeners for joining us today. We would love to hear from you. So please reach out to us if there is a guest you want to listen to on the podcast or have any other suggestions. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.